I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. The Uncertain podcast seeks to challenge the church to do better, so we end up discussing a lot of abuse in the church. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. You can check out more information about Tears of Eden in the show notes. And if you're finding this podcast helpful, please consider giving a donation at tearsofeden.org support. So this is part two of a multi-part episode featuring Abigail and Kara revealing their harrowing experience of abuse in a church, followed by a traumatizing attempt to get justice. I was originally planning to do two parts, but after the recording of this episode, some more events developed that made having a part three necessary. That will come out next week. Before we jump into part two, I just want to take a moment to recognize the bravery it takes for a victim to go public. I know this because I talk to dozens of survivors of church abuse every week. Going public is usually a last resort and rarely happens without a lot of fear and trembling, especially when you're going up against a lot of power in an establishment. That's what this episode reveals, the difficulty of finding justice within a corrupt system. Sometimes the only way to find justice is to go public. So if you're a survivor of church abuse and you've exhausted every resource and believe going public is the next step for exposing darkness and seeking justice, please feel free to reach out to me. Both Kara and Abigail have also offered to be a resource for survivors navigating church abuse situations. This is not isolated, and you are not alone. So this has gone recapping. You have sent letters to the presbytery, CCing elders, females, Females who advised the presbytery, and then what happened? We got an immediate response from one person that was really short, and they said they would be following up. And that person scheduled a phone interview with me and Kara. And he basically just asked us to recount everything all over again in our own words, uh, which was kind of a strange way of saying it because the letter was in our own words. And so it was like he was trying to see if there was inconsistency in our story or I don't know. We basically just rehash it all over the phone. This was another elder on that church planting committee who was doing this interview. Presbytery. So yeah. Interesting that they were interviewing you pre-formation of the commission. I'm Mm -hmm. probably getting ahead of this, but go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) And that it was these guys doing the interview. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel sharing with him? Did you feel safe? Um, we were really nervous. It was before COVID. So we like went, I went over to Kara's house and we like sat together with her cat to comfort us. And we were like super nervous talking to him. What made you nervous? He had asked to record the conversation. Oh. And yeah. then when we asked, well, we're not unwilling to record it, but we would like to know who's going to have access to that recording and will we receive Absolutely. a copy of it? And then he was like, oh, never mind. I don't think it's necessary to record. So. That interaction kind of made us a little nervous. We also were aware that this was one of the, this pastor's dear friends and his, you know, colleagues on the church planting committee. We were aware of his involvement. Holy fuck, so, really? Yeah. So it's very 
they, it was a very tight knit group around this guy. And it's like three or four guys that always seem really to can't trust up. anyone. Right. So we were, we were just kind of unsure what to, what to expect or what the motives were. And also it was kind of weird. They were doing this and it's not in the book of church order to do a pre-interview or anything like that. Why weren't we moving to process? Absolutely. You had plenty of evidence to go to process. Yeah, we had a 10-page letter, just our own stuff, like not even the other people and like the previous letters. Wow. So, okay, so you had this interview with this guy and then what happens? The clerk at that time of Essential Indiana Presbytery reached out via email and like apologized for the pain that we had endured and basically said, it's our intention to confront and here's what you're being accused of. And we, he, they told us the date that it was happening and like we waited to hear what happened after that. And I think before they had let us know anything, that next Sunday after he was confronted, he preached this really angry, ranting, horrible sermon about haters and accusers and false witnesses and all of this, these enemies of his. Was that, was that the shake it off one? Yeah, that was the Taylor Swift sermon. Here's a clip from that sermon. Well, a hater, according to the Urban Dictionary, is this. It's a uh, hater's going to hate is a colloquial saying. It means that people who don't like you will always find a reason to dislike you, no matter how stupid that reason may be. And so our dilemma this morning is the same as David's dilemma in Psalm 69. What do you do with haters? How do we respond to haters? Well, according to Taylor Swift, we should shake it off. Baby, shake it, shake it off. So here's the thing with shaking it off, is that I have tried it. And it's not working for me. How's that going for you? Okay, Dan, it's one thing to use the Bible in the pulpit as a weapon, but don't desecrate Taylor Swift lyrics. Just no. It's so frustrating because this alone is enough to cause anyone concern that if he receives accusations and then he preaches an inflammatory sermon right after it, there's something wrong just with that. Well, we sent a copy of the sermon to the clerk and we said, we're really alarmed by this. Like we live in the same town as this guy, like, you know, and they had told us if he shows up at your house, call the police. And so we, we told them we're concerned about this. And then we got a week later, a response from the clerk that just said, thanks. And like, nothing was done. He was still allowed to stay in the pulpit and he was in the pulpit for this entire process and he's still ordained. Yeah, they, the Presbytery voted to form an investigation commission, and then the head of that commission reached out to us to set up, was, was that to set up the first interview? Yeah. Like, basically, deposition, call it our yeah. deposition. And so he was brought up on charges? No, he's still mm-hmm. not brought up on charges at this point. No trial. Really? Yeah, this was just a preliminary uh, investigation to determine if there was a strong presumption of guilt so that it would go to trial. Oh, goodness. Mind that we were... This went on for eight months, this part of the process, Mm. just determining whether it should go to trial or not. I spoke to Kate, a woman assigned to advise the commission that was eventually formed. This is what she said. So in September of 2019, I just got an email from my pastor. And he was asking if he didn't give me details about what was going on, but he just kind of vaguely asked if I'd be willing to be brought in to give the commission counsel as a quote, like a wise Christian woman. And I've been attending this church. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. 
Um, I'd been attending the church for about 10 years, so I knew him pretty well, I thought. And I kind of had an idea that maybe it would be allegations of a sexual nature, but I didn't know anything for sure. So I responded, and then two days later, he emailed back with Kara, Abigail, and Chris's testimonies attached. Just the written testimonies. What did you think when you first heard the case or read the case? Yes, I was really struck by the details. They included specific quotes and instances that they described, again, in great detail. They were clear. They were talking about very serious incidences. They were along the same lines. I know they submitted it together, but sexual harassment, exhibitionism, stalking, lying, abuse of power use of the pulpit slander and it just felt really concerning so I knew like oh there are three people coming forward (laughs) similar concerns and really specific examples of what happened and I just felt like this is really serious and so they were doing interviews with you guys yeah and with uh, the pastor the same day they were going to make us relive our trauma in the location where it occurred wait Um, Wait, wait, wait. So they want to do this interview in person in this church, at this church where you experienced abuse. Okay. Well, so then we pointed that out to them later and they basically claimed that they didn't know that's where the church met. So Kate, who was one of the woman advisors on the commission, apologized on behalf of the whole commission at the start of our deposition and said, we were completely unaware that this is where the church meets. We are so sorry, you know, okay. and she was sincere. Like Kate is a champion. She's the hero in this story. But so she offered this apology and they're all nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah, we're sorry. But one of the guys on the commission, who is also a close friend of the pastors, he is the pastor of counseling at our flagship church in the Presbytery Redeemer. And he runs the counseling center there. And he is a very close friend and mentor of pastor and he's on the commission yep yeah in fact we found out later it was the church planting committee that got to appoint the members of the commission and got to set that up that is so wrong here's kate again when did you start seeing red flags on the commission unfortunately i saw them from the very beginning from the time that we got kara chris and abigail's testimonies they were pushed by the commission to reveal their identities to Dan, their perpetrator. They were continually told, like, he can't, we can't really confront him if they don't know, if he doesn't know who you are and what exactly you're talking about. They were just like, he's, how is he going to remember these specific instances or how could he repent if he doesn't oh know my what, <laughs> what you're talking about? And again, that goes totally against trauma care and training and anything if you know about how abuse works that is not what you're supposed to do (laughs) so that was alarming to me that they just kept being pushed and asked multiple times and even the internal dialogue among us commission members we often communicated via email and often back and forth people were saying you know we need them to tell him who they are and they just kept being brought up Um, Wow. Definitely red flags. And even the tone before we had the first face-to-face meeting with them, and in the same day we had the first face-to-face meeting with Dan as well to hear his side, we spent all of our time and energy determining how we were going to kind of grill 
the victims on their testimonies. And we spent almost no time talking about how we were going to test the validity of Dan's testimony. So right away, they were on Dan's side, basically. Oh, totally. Yeah, and then one of the guys, the head of the commission, had a habit of tweeting about how he doesn't believe women when they come forward, and that, you know. And so that was the head of the commission. Yeah, and then one of the other guys had been brought up on charges the prior year and had been exonerated. Guess who wrote his exoneration letter? That head of the commission. The pastor. The accused pastor. No. No, like almost every single person on that committee had like strong connections to the pastor or to the church planting effort. Like that right there is And the two women that were appointed, one of them was a congregant of the head of the commission. So that would put a lot of pressure on her, right? The other woman besides Kate, who we've talked about, was a spouse of one of the men on the commission. So it was like everyone in some way was implicated to be biased or to yeah. feel some sort of pressure to like conform to agree to we can agree. do an entire podcast episode just on that. Yeah. So messed up. Yeah. So messed up. Kate was so courageous because in spite of all that, she went to bat for us anyway. She was the only one that really shone on that commission. Everyone else, it was awful, but she offered this beautiful apology, you know, for helping us relive our trauma in the location where it occurred and then one of the pastors, the pastor of counseling, won't make eye contact with me. And I realized why. Because he regularly guest preaches at our church in uh, that location. So he did know and didn't disclose it to the others. So they came back to their place of trauma that some of the other commission members knew that that's where those things had happened and asked them to come to his territory to meet. One in particular seemed to know him more. For instance, when Dan came into the room, the very first time I met him, this other commission member kicked back in his chair and like put his, like leaned way far back, put his, one of his arms like slung over this, like the back of the chair, so relaxed. And I remember thinking, what is going on here? He was like leaning forward and asking lots of intentional questions to the victims, but now he's just like really relaxed. And I found out later, like they're good friends. They were even like having just casual phone conversations in the midst of the investigation that we were having. That is not okay. Definitely not okay. But he is um, investigating his own friend. Yes. Whoa. Yep. yep. And I will say, I don't know the specifics of this, but I do know that this man had also been accused in his own church of something that then Dan had been a part of exonerating him. So that just shows you the levels of bias and unfairness for the victims that was taking place. They were actually really rude during the depositions. During, while I was trying to give my testimony, I was actually cut short and told, you know, we don't want to hear anymore. Like, I think we've heard enough. And then we took a break and I heard my name several times in the men's room because there's a big echo. And I heard just roars of laughter coming out of the men's room. Oh my God. And my name several times. And then I had to go back in there and finish the deposition and, and basically act like I didn't hear that. But yeah, they were laughing. And then they also referred to our trauma as locker room bravado and seventh grade playfulness. To your faces? Oh, yeah. Right there in the room. One of the members of the commission asked 
Kara, like, are you sure that these behaviors from the pastor weren't just locker room bravado or seventh grade playfulness in the meeting? Kate was livid because she couldn't really do anything. She's sitting there watching her colleagues do this. She said that behind the scenes, they spent their entire meetings coming up with questions for us to try to trick us. And to trap you. Yeah, so to find an inconsistency. Or, and so, you know, after that experience, they met with Dan the same day and like he got two hours all to himself to tell his side of the story. And so very uh, pastor centric. Yeah. And they wouldn't tell us how he responded or if he had figured out our identities. In fact, they told us, oh, you're still anonymous. He hasn't figured out who you are. Well, he wrote an 18 page document. We call it the Danifesto, just completely trashing all of his victims by name. And he figured out my identity immediately. And he made claims about my mental health and my past trauma and just about my character and just said that, oh, well, she's just confused because of what's happened in her past and her past trauma. But we we got a hold of that document later and it was awful, but we were told nothing about it. We were not told that he had written a letter. It actually got to the whole presbytery. The following clip is taken from the end of that same Taylor Swift sermon. Because when Jesus was accused, when he was slandered, when he was attacked, how did he respond? Luke 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. You see, the greater David, he didn't curse in return. He returned a blessing. Okay, Dan, I could be wrong, but an 18-page document in your own defense naming all the victims who asked to remain anonymous doesn't really sound like issuing a blessing. But seriously, I could be wrong. And he wrote it to the presbytery to describe yep, all in of his them. own defense, um, and he names people. And yeah, but when they talked to us after the depositions, they said, "Oh, he hasn't figured out." you know, your identities, you're still anonymous. And, you know, he was cooperative, but we, we really aren't at liberty to say how he responded. Mm. So they weren't telling us anything. They wouldn't answer our questions. And then they started asking us for more witnesses. And so we suggested three people. We suggested the other couple that had written their testimony in our letter, who had been anonymous up to that point. And they said, we're willing to reveal our identities and come forward. We suggested another couple that had written them at the same time as we did, and they had, we still haven't even seen their testimony. We don't actually know what happened to them, but apparently it strongly corroborates, you know, mm. what we experienced. And um, they didn't reach out to any of these people no. at the commission. No. So they came forward and we recommended them. So they refused to even wit- interview all the witnesses we brought forward, but then they kept pressuring us for more and more names. They're like, we want more people, more people. And we're like, Why? And they just kept pressuring us. And so we brought several other names up, other victims that said they were willing to talk to them. And they just kept pushing for more names. And then they finally named two couples and said, are these two couples involved? And it was the assistant pastor that had been run out. And it was the campus minister that had been run out. Like they wanted to like, basically. They wanted us to name those two. Right. And so I said, you, if you approach them, you need to be very careful because they were traumatized by what happened to them. Please, they've already been through enough. They've moved on with their lives. Well, they went ahead and contacted one of them anyway and was bothering them, even though I had told them they're not involved in this. You know, they've moved on. It turns out the pastor and his flying monkeys were claiming that this was a big conspiracy that goes all the way back to those other couples. 
that all these families in Bloomington got together in a big conspiracy to try to run this guy out of town and that it was all collusion and and the commission was trying to prove the claim true. It kept trying to make us give up the names of those couples so that it would support his claim. That's where it took a turn where, oh, we need to, what we need is more testimonies from more different people that Karen, Abigail, and Chris had mentioned might be willing to meet with us. When we met with Karen, Abigail, and Chris that first time, Abigail asked very kindly and genuinely, how many testimonies would be enough for you all? Because she, we, they kept asking them, you know, would there be more people? And I think that question is just so key. What, how many would have been enough for, you know, this first commission in the Presbytery? It seemed like no number, because by the end we had 10, and that wasn't enough. We didn't know what, you know, the pastor was saying in his defense or what he was accusing us of or that our characters were being attacked. But he was but allowed he bring, and he was allowed to bring in three character witnesses for himself that mm-hmm. we had to use up all our slots to bring in like corroboration. So they interviewed additional people. They interviewed the character witnesses and then they interviewed our two out of three of people we had suggested. And then they went around behind us and, you know, started bothering the other families, at least one of them. This is going on for months. He is still in the pulpit. He's still ordained. The congregation knows nothing about what's happening. They haven't been told about the investigation, you know, and of course he gets to rant from the pulpit about liars and false accusers. And He's still uh-huh. telling his own story and his own yeah. narrative. And yeah. Plenty of, plenty of platform to be able to do that. Yep. What was the impact on you guys during this eight months? How is this affecting you? It was stressful and I was trying to finish a dissertation and I, you know, couldn't even focus on it. And I was getting physically ill over this and having a lot of nightmares and flashbacks and just nervous. It was a small town. So we never knew if we were going to run into somebody we knew and him, he was still in town and we'd see him sometimes out and about. It was just very stressful because like, does he know? I almost took out a restraining order because we had been consulting with IU legal services throughout this. Yeah, they were so helpful. I don't know what we would have done without them. And they had actually drafted up a restraining order. And I felt sorry for him, so I didn't file it. Because if it was granted, it would go in a publicly searchable database for two years. And I just had a moment of pity. And I regret it. But, Mm. yeah, I just, I didn't want to do that to his family, Mm. I guess. They also refused to interview his wife. They said that she, this was going to be hard enough on her as it is. So I'm not even sure what they were, what they were telling her. Right. Um, I think they said they were just going to let him tell her what was going on. Of course. But yeah, no one else in the congregation had any idea what was going on. Um, Abigail, what about you in terms of like impact? What was happening for you? Yeah, just a lot of stress and anxiety talking about it with my therapist. And like, I never felt so powerless and voiceless where it felt like we were doing everything we could. Like we're two really intelligent, capable women and we were doing everything we could do, but we had like no control over what was happening and we had no idea at this point how like rigged it was and all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes. So I think if we had known it would have been so much worse, but like even without knowing it was just so stressful. And like, I felt like we, it was constantly something on our minds that we were having to be in communication about to like plan, like, okay, how are we going to prepare for our interview? Like, how are they going to try to trip us up and make us say something that's going to like, throw the whole thing out and like we were studying the book of church order and 
like, you know, listening to podcasts and reading books and like trying to figure out, you know, what are they trying to do here and how, how do we need to like present ourselves to be perceived as truthful? Cause obviously we are, but like we, we knew the whole thing of like, you know, accusing us of being troublemakers and gossipers was sort of a trope in this presbytery that had been right. used in the past. So we were just really worried that they would try that. Right. And you're mm-hmm. dealing with this, but then you're also the ones who were traumatized. So you're dealing with that. And then you're dealing with these eight months of stress of powerlessness and not knowing what's happening, having to be your own defense on top of the trauma that you've already experienced in this church. So eight months go by. What is the what is the result of this commission investigation? It took them quite a long time to come to a final decision and like it went on and on. We actually weren't told the outcome. He was told well in advance of the presbytery vote. And we were told that it was necessary that he know because his livelihood and vocation are on the line after all. And they said he needs to know what to expect going into that presbytery meeting. So they insisted on waiting until after the presbytery voted and finalized it before they were going to reveal the outcome to us. But he got to know well in advance and he got yeah. to go to the meeting. Very perpetrator centric. Yeah. And he got to vote on his own case. And they also concealed his identity from the rest of the presbytery as the accused. Like when they presented their final report, they didn't reveal who it was or what he was accused of. Just wow. in the most vague terms, their final report apparently was heavily edited. So the original one was longer and more detailed, and then the church planting people got to come in and review it and edit it before the presbytery saw it, changed the language from correct in some places it mentioned some corrections, and they changed it to recommendations and just softened the wording. And Kate just 100% objected to what they were planning to do, and she wrote a letter of dissent. It was a beautiful letter, basically being like, this is wrong, and here's why, you know. And she had citations in there, I think, from Diane Langberg and a few other experts. She had, you know, I think statistics, definitions. Like, it was a beautifully written letter. And they buried it. They didn't show it to the presbytery. And they struck her vote from the record. This became kind of clear later. I didn't know. I thought I was a commission member at first. But technically, uh, me and the other woman that were a part of it were advisors to the commission members who were men and elders in the presbytery so we as women were not permitted to be commission members who have a vote but we are just advisors to those that do have a vote we did take votes and as the commission met and we were counted during those times but then when it was presented to the presbytery our votes were redacted that i didn't know until you know i found out a lot of this later but there were the like red flags and the relaxed positions, the no questions for him, the buddy-buddy talk. Before we even met with the victims, I tried to, I felt wrong about how we were going about it, so I tried to have some conversations about being a safe place as the church to hear and believe victims and how we needed to approach them differently. But then was more, I guess, during debriefs and follow-up times that we had together in person and emails where I often found myself uh, disagreeing with everyone else in the commission, which was so taxing. It, it really does 
wonders on your your brain. You're like, what? Am, am I the one that's wrong here? What's? Why is no one else seeing this? And the other woman also, her husband was on the commission as well. They did a good job in the moment of making it seem like they were listening, affirming what I was saying, but then, you know, disagreeing, which again, that played on my mind and was confusing to experience. But it was more when they wrote up their first draft of their assessment of the whole situation that I felt like, wow, I'm completely on the other side of this. By that, I mean, I wanted to bring in Grace or some other trained outside professional unbiased investigation to take place that wasn't handled internally. And they thought, oh, there's not a strong presumption of guilt and he should be cleared. I've, I spoke directly with my pastor before I let the other commission members know, like, hey, I am over here while you all are over here. I can't, it doesn't make sense for me to continue to meet with you. So after that point, my pastor, who was leading the commission, like, cut me off from all the communication, like future communication. So they continued to meet in person and email back and forth for months, and I never knew what was happening anymore. And then I found out that they presented the assessment as unanimous because they redacted our, you know, my vote and the other woman's vote. And I, I had to fight really hard for my, I wrote a dissent to their assessment and I had to fight really hard for that to be received uh, by the presbytery because also I'm a woman and the, my document, my dissent, had, there had to be a special, I don't know, acceptance or vote to be able to get that into the official documents because I'm not an elder. And then we received contact from an elder in the presbytery after, right after they had voted. And at that point, we still hadn't known what happened. All we knew was that the pastor had announced he was resigning from the church and would not be accepting the calling to be their pastor once they particularized. And that he was moving to Carmel and starting a one-year paid sabbatical. We later found out he was actively looking for full-time senior pastor positions in other larger churches in the PCA. He was nearly hired recently. Nearly hired? Yeah, it was really close. But yeah, so he, it's not, he wasn't leaving the ministry. He wasn't being, you know, deposed or anything like that. That much was clear. And so we knew that. And we knew the church was going ahead with particularization and we're going to install a new pastor. Guess who the search committee was? It was the three. Monkeys first. Yeah. So and like, he is currently on a paid sabbatical. Yeah. Still ordained and actively being a candidate for a lot of pastor positions. So basically there was no consequence. No. And so I got an email from an elder being like, I know you don't know who I am and you have no reason to trust me, but I just want you to know this is so wrong. And I'm going to be filing a complaint on your behalf, you know, against my presbytery for their actions. And this is out of the blue. So I called him because he invited me to call him. I was like, what are you talking about? What happened? And he was appalled because he thought we had been told because they were told that the presbytery. They never told you. Yeah. No, they were planning on it, but they just hadn't gotten around to it yet. Right, right. Yeah, so he he told us what happened, and then we later, you know, found out more of the details. So basically what happened was they told the presbytery, well, there were some accusations against someone. We're not going to say who. We looked into it, and basically the accusations don't rise to the level of chargeable offenses, you know. So there was some, there was some lapse in judgment, and, you know, we're going to recommend you know, that 
there'll be some counseling that we'll pay for and some sensitivity training. And yeah, so, and those recommendations. Was any of this counseling offered to victims? No, no mm-hmm. counseling, nothing was offered to any of the victims. And they said, and these recommendations will be carried out by the church planting, you know. And so you guys weren't even considered victims? No. And this was not. And these were not chargeable offenses. So no, there was going to be no trial, nothing. So this is basically kangaroo court. Yeah. And this elder objected. He was like, why aren't you showing us any of the minutes, you know, from your meetings? You you guys were working on this for eight months, which is ridiculously long. Um, right. And all the data you collected, where is it? Where's the evidence? And there was some arguing about it. And basically what the commission leader said, this wasn't. Uh, word for word, but basically the way that they made it sound, it was basically no worse than Michael Scott making a that's what she said joke, you know, out of place or some weird, they were just like, it was all just that's inappropriate. A misunderstanding, just a small harmless thing is what they told them. Mm. So yeah, they voted to clear him. Mm. Um, And then this elder had gone and it was like pulling teeth, getting a hold of any of the information but he finally got it and saw my our letter and saw kate's letter and he was furious but yeah then so we then had our meeting with the commission of course kate wasn't there because she was stricken from the oh yeah she was uninvited to subsequent meetings they formed a subcommittee within the commission and that was how they were able to shut her out when she was objecting to what they were planning to do because originally they were apparently going to make us meet with the pastor to reconcile no yeah uh, that in her letter apparently they somebody had the good sense to edit that out but wow so they they stopped inviting her to things she was basically kicked off the commission and her vote was stricken from the record she was so courageous i she's amazing she's a shekhael a woman of valor how do you how does it feel to know that you had i guess it sounds like two champions an elder and then kate champions yeah they were my knights it does feel good but also bad it's bittersweet because you know this elder there have been threats to bring him up on charges for slander for pursuing this and there's been immense pressure on him and so seeing him take suffer consequences for being a whistleblower and you know and then Kate also she was very traumatized by having to endure this so I'm glad that there were advocates but also sad to see that despite their courage and their efforts, like there were the ones that were being perceived as aggressors. Mm -hmm. And Kate ended up leaving her church and like moving somewhere else. Like all these people have faced consequences for standing up and standing up for what's right. And honestly, like being put in a position that they shouldn't have been put in, like, I don't know, the leaders of the commission and the people who, whose job it is to make sure these things don't happen and are taken care of, like didn't do their job. So then other people had to stand up. Right. Yeah. How, yeah. Does, it, how does it feel now just with this outcome? I mean, we were really devastated after we learned that basically their what they told us was it would be an un, injustice for a man to lose his job over this. And I don't know, it just felt like we were really worthless to them and we were just an annoyance to them that they wanted to go away and make me quiet and now I mean it's been like a lot of therapy still and trying to like work through it together and there are still things going on in the background like I don't know if we can talk about this Kara but like it ended up going to the SJC Mm -hmm. the Standing Judicial Commission 
Uh, yeah, so, and then and that's at the general assembly with the general. Yeah, assembly. and they ended up. There are several things that happened in there, but then they ended up basically remanding it back to the CIP and said y'all had errors in how you conducted your initial investigation, and now you need to start over and form a committee and investigate at a committee level instead. And so we're back to square one with them. Their plan is to completely start over and do it all over again. No. Yep. And that's not even the the cherry on the banana split here. Somebody got to put a motion on the floor of the presbytery on his own case and dictate the terms of the investigation. And it passed. This pastor did. Yep. So are you considering refusing participating? (sighs) I did consider just because I have like no faith that a second chance is going to be much different at all. Yeah. Like, there's no reason to me why it would be. It's the same, ultimately the same group of people. And it feels honestly like we're just being used as a pawn in, oh, the poor CIP, they messed up and now they need to correct their mistakes. And we're just like a pawn in their whole like absolutely discipline as a presbytery. But yeah, I, I think I'll still continue forward if there's even a slim chance of anything happening. So I will, too, because the stakes are a little higher now. If the pastor ultimately gets exonerated, the elder can be, the elder that blew the whistle can be brought on charges for slander. So so you need to go through with it for his Yeah, we're going to stand by him right now. And Kate as well, and her courage. and just What gives you the courage to keep going? I've always been stubborn, I guess. I don't know. Resilience is something that is used to describe me a lot. I came out of the foster care system, you know, had kind of a rough time as a kid. And I think I've always just been kind of scrappy. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to say it's God and stuff, but like at this point, I'm just completely shattered and gutted, you know, I'm carrying on, but I just, it's just been so awful. And also watching my husband get torn apart because he stood by me because he didn't give me up and just watching him pay the price for that and watching. So there's just been a lot of uh, talk in the presbytery, you know, about how hard this has been for the pastor and how much he suffered and, you know, his family and just, but there's very little um, of that kind of thing offered to us about how hard this has been for us and the impact. And we're basically being portrayed as the enemies, you know, the attackers, the accusers, the local church. Also, there's been some vicious things that have been said about us as more of this has come to light because they were told nothing. The only reason they found out about what was going on is because my article came out in CBE. Mm. And, they, and then the church had to call a little family meeting, you know. To, to finish the situation, but yeah, they were told nothing. And a student at RUF actually confronted the campus minister when she found out about the investigation and she confronted him and said, why didn't you guys disclose this? Like you have all these people in your care, especially young women. and Going to this church. Yeah. And there was an accused predator in the pulpit the whole time and you didn't say anything. Of course, what he didn't tell her was that he votes in the pastor's favor on the presbytery floor and also was telling people, if you knew the situation, these people like I do, you would believe him. And not. he conveniently wasn't telling her that he was you know, actively supporting. But that's a classic, a classic, just discredit the victim, discredit. Yeah. Victim, discredit. And so. In public, the leadership will tell the congregation, you know, we're being impartial and truth. We will pray for truth and justice and, you know, we're doing the right thing. But then behind closed doors, there's just been a lot of trashing of us. What about you, Abigail? What helps you keep going? 
I think just the hope that there's still a chance that justice can happen. I don't want this to happen to anyone else in the Central Indiana Presbytery or in the PCA or anywhere. And I think that this whole thing has just uncovered a ton of issues with how this denomination handles abuse and the complete lack of support there is for anyone who wants to come forward and they're the, all of their processes are so out of date and not they have no structure in place to investigate abuse. And so, I mean, it's sort of lofty, but I hope that something comes out of this, not just that will be justice for us, but also like structural changes within the PCA. And I also want to stand by Kara and the other victims and the elder and everyone else coming forward. We've just been in this together for so long and we're in it together. And all we can do is hope and pray that something will come of it. You're making me cry. <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I'm so grateful to hear that because I feel like so often, like we hear these stories after the success has happened, you know, like after the justice has happened and you guys have very much not experienced justice and have gone through so much, but you're still, you still think it's worth fighting, not just for each other but then just for other victims and I just I am so so grateful to hear that and it's encouraging me I hope it encourages listeners that justice is worth fighting for and it absolutely is yeah what makes you say that I don't know I just know it is I just I have and I don't want that like Abigail said I don't want this to happen to somebody else and you know, the leadership in this presbytery may not value their women, but I do. I know them. I love them, even if they don't know me or think that I'm out to get the church or whatever. I'm doing this for them. Mm-hmm. And other women, I've gotten messages from all over the country from other women who have experienced things like this in the PCA. And every time I get a letter like that, I just think I'm doing this for you. This is for you. And I think about all those women and their names and if I've met them, their faces. You know, every time I have to go to bat and every time I get knocked down, that's what gets me back up is mm-hmm. them because I value them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're worth fighting for. They are. And I'm going to fight. Next time on Uncertain. It was after we recorded our podcast, our local Bloomington student led paper actually picked up the story and ran it a very detailed investigative report that just exposed everything. Not only did the Presbytery vote to send this to trial, but they also voted to suspend Dan from his elder office for the duration of the trial. I just hope that this is just a wake up call to the entire, you know, PCA, like there's something rotten in this system and the way that it's being set up that is not supporting victims. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. Hey.